Good morning. We've got a handout coming around. <clears throat> we are in the uh, book or the letter of Jude this morning, the epistle of Jude. This letter is only 25 verses long. It's one of the shortest books of the New Testament, but it packs quite a punch. So if you could turn with me to the book of Jude. Or you could turn with me to the book of Revelation and just go one page before that. All right, sometimes it's helpful to know a little bit about the background of a book. Um, and we're just going to touch on a couple things. Jude was the brother of James. Both of them were half-brothers of the Lord Jesus. So they were raised by Joseph and Mary uh, in the same home. And uh, yet, neither one of them knew the Lord uh, as their Savior until after the resurrection. Now, before we look at the book, I want to ask you a question. What do the stories of the Jews in the wilderness angels, Sodom and Gomorrah, Cain, Balaam, Korah, hidden reefs, clouds, wind, sea, trees, wandering stars, all have in common. Don't say the letter A. (laughs) What do they have in common? They're They're all in the book of Jude. Okay, In this small book, all, all of those things that I mentioned have one thing in common. And we're going to look at what that is as we go through it. In, they all, in some way, represent ungodly men who are called apostates. An apostate, uh, we don't hear much about them in the Scripture, but we do in certain, in certain cases, certain books. An apostate is a person who has made a profession of faith. They say that they have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior at some point. But at some point in their life, they repudiate Him. They turn away from the Lord, and they do it with full knowledge of what they're doing. They understand completely the consequences of their choice, but they reject the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord, and they're not just happy to reject Him, but they want to take others with them. That is the, the um, definition, if you will, of an apostate. I have known very, very few apostates in my life, but I have known some. I have had to confront an apostate. Um, and when his apostasy was exposed, it, the very thing that I said uh, apostates do, he did. He was not content just to hold this view himself but he wanted to take as many people with him. And actually, if you want to strip strip away the the, um, political correctness of it all, he wanted to take others with him to hell. That's really what we're talking about. That's how serious uh, apostasy is. Um, let Let me emphasize this too. One of the things 
uh, about an apostate is that their apostasy is proof positive that they never knew the Lord in the first place. It's not that they were once a Christian and went and fell away. They never knew the Lord at all. In fact, in this book, we see that they did not have the Holy Spirit in them. It might help us to consider what an apostate is by thinking about Judas Iscariot. It is often said it's amazing how close a person can be to the Lord and yet never know him. And it's amazing how far a person can be from the Lord and yet still be saved. And we consider a person like Judas Iscariot. He was a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, just like the other disciples. As a matter of fact, if you were to line them up side by side, you could barely tell the difference between them externally. You would not necessarily know that Judas Iscariot was an apostate. As you look at the twelve, when the Lord said to them at the Last Supper that one of you will betray me, all of the disciples looked upon themselves and said, Lord, is it me? Am I the one who will betray you? They didn't all say, oh yeah, it's Judas. They didn't say that. And yet he was the apostate in the crowd. That's the deviousness of an apostate. They can be right in our midst and we wouldn't know it necessarily. But eventually the truth comes out. Eventually it comes out as it did with uh, Judas. Even after he had bargained with the Jewish leaders to sell the Lord for 30 pieces of silver, he sat down at the table and ate with them as if he was one of them. But he was a traitor, a deserter, a betrayer, an apostate. When the Lord said that one of his disciples would betray him, it wasn't obvious uh, to the rest of them. So Judas, also another thing about him, he turned against the Lord Jesus Christ for money. Money was a motivating factor to him, what he could get out of the Lord. And there have been plenty of men and women who have betrayed the Lord Jesus for less than 30 pieces of silver. They're willing to sell out for less than that. Let me ask you a question. What is he worth to you? What is the Lord Jesus worth to you? Well, let's take a look at our outline. And we're going to start with the greeting in verses 1 and 2. The letter is from Jude to Christians. Jude, verse 1, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to see that in this book, there are two types of people, or two classes of people, if you will, that Jude uh, speaks about. The first group of people that he's talking about are believers. Absolutely no question. We're going to take a look at what he says about them. The second group that he talks about are apostates and he's very clear in making the distinctions between the two groups so the first group he talks about uh, is, is believers he writes to believers and he encourages them he says in um, this verse that believers are sanctified I'm sorry they are called they are sanctified they are preserved now throughout the rest of the book he also mentions some things about believers that are important he says that believers are beloved and it's not that they're just loved but they're divinely loved um uh, eric sometimes greets matt uh how do you say it oh matt started it okay 
beloved of the Lord. Yeah, beloved of the Lord. That's really what it means. That God, they are divinely loved. Believers are loved, loved of the Lord. And saints is another verse, uh, verse 3, he talks about them. And then in verses 17 and 20, he calls believers beloved again. In verses 1 and 2, they are called. This is the pre-conversion work of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. And, and his call is to salvation. It results in salvation. Believers are then sanctified. That is, we are set apart for God. We are set apart to be godly. We are set apart to be holy, uh, to be useful to the Lord. And then believers are preserved in Jesus Christ. Uh, we don't often talk about this, but what he's talking about here is the preservation of the saints. Okay, And really what it means is that you've heard the phrase, once saved, always saved. Okay, That's really what he's talking about here. When a, when a person is truly born again, they cannot be unborn. Okay, it's, it's impossible. A person who is truly born again is kept by the power of God. We are not kept by our own power, our own strength, but God himself keeps or preserves uh, genuine believers. In this book, um, Jude uses a writing style that is quite interesting. He, he combines thoughts together in triplicate. Okay, so there are triplets, if you want to call it that, um, that, that are scattered throughout this book. And we're going to try to point them out as we go. This is one of them here. Saints are, or believers are called, they are sanctified, they are preserved. That's the first triplet that we see here. You remember when the Lord Jesus prayed his high priestly prayer and he prayed about us believers and this is what he prayed he said in john 17 11, holy father keep through your name those whom you have given me that we may be that they may be one as we are and that prayer of keeping is the same word that is used here of preserving saint believers are preserved by god Paul wrote to Timothy, you remember, and he said, in the last days, perilous times will come. And I believe that we are in the last days and perilous times have already arrived. And we are going to see as the days unfold, if the Lord grants us more days, that, that spiritual things are going to become more and more difficult. Um, we're going to see more and more um, false teachers come on the scene. We will see more and more apostates come on the scene until it all culminates in the Antichrist um, who, is, who is to come. And so this book is kind of like the anteroom, if you will, uh, before the book of Revelation, which will reveal to us more about uh, the Antichrist who is coming. But all of the uh, ducks are in a row, if you will. All of the things are in place for that to occur. And Jude is talking here about perilous times that um, have come. An apostate is one who, by his own choice, has turned away from the Lord. Yet true believers are called, sanctified, and preserved. Okay, a second triplicate here is that God, from God, believers have multiplied to them mercy, 
peace, and love. All right, verses 3 and 4. The purpose of the letter. It's a call to contend earnestly for the faith. Jude, actually, if we read this carefully, it says, um, well, let me read it, verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common faith or salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. He had in his heart to write to them about salvation, to write to them about our common blessings in Christ. But instead he was constrained or compelled by the Holy Spirit to write to them about uh, contending earnestly for the faith. He says in verse 4, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. When he says in uh, verse 3 to contend earnestly for the faith, the faith in Scripture refers to the body of doctrine that we hold to, that was was, uh, presented to us by the apostles it was given to us by the apostles and we contend earnestly for it we we should be willing to go to battle for it we should be willing to fight to the death for it that's really what he's saying here that's how important the faith is it's the body of doctrine that we hold to the canon of scripture is complete what you have in your hand what i have in my hand is the complete word of god we don't look for more This is it. God is not going to give us further revelation. He's already given us uh, all that we need for life and for godliness. There are no missing books of the Bible. There are no additional books to come. There are no new books. Be on guard against anyone who says, Oh, the Lord told me this. Or the Lord told me that. As some new revelation. It's not true. In fact, Harry Ironside used to say, uh, if it's true, it isn't new. And if it's new, it isn't true. Okay, It's a good little phrase to remember. If it's true, it isn't new. If it's new, it isn't true. So we should become like the Christians at Berea who listened to the teaching from Paul and then they went back to the Bible and compared everything that Paul said, Paul's an apostle, but they compared everything that Paul said with what the Scripture said to see if these things were true. And they found they were. So wherever you hear teaching, whether it's on TV or on the radio, through songs or from the pulpit, you can judge. In fact, you must judge everything you hear uh, and compare it to the Word of God to see if it is true underscore this we must always compare what we are being taught with what the bible says we never call into question the veracity of this book and we never call into question the body of truth here called the faith but we do call into question the teaching of men that is contrary to the faith and so if you hear something compare it to the bible to see if it is true The question is not whether the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints is accurate. The question is, does your doctrine 
line up with the scripture? Does what you believe line up with what the Bible says? Because the Bible is not going to change. We must change to conform our thinking, to conform our beliefs to what the Bible says, to what the Bible teaches. We are exhorted to contend for the faith. It is critical that you know what you believe and it is critical that you know why you believe it. It's, not, it's, not, uh, it's good to know what you believe and to have a good body of doctrine behind you, but it is absolutely essential that you have a why. Why do we believe this? What is it that we believe and why? You're going to face men and women in your life, whether teachers or preachers or just people at work, friends, family, who are going to say things and try to undermine the faith that you believe. You must be prepared. We must contend for the faith. Now, in verse 4, Jude begins to speak about the second group of people in this letter, the apostates. Here is the reason why we must contend for the faith. It is because, he says, certain men have crept in unnoticed. These men slipped in the back door. No one seemed to notice their arrival. They just seemed to appear one day, and they were with us, and they seemed to be one of us. What kind of men are they? Here's another trilogy. They are ungodly men. They turn the grace of God into lewdness, and they deny the Lord Jesus Christ. They are ungodly. They are irreverent, immoral, wicked men who have no fear of God. Just as Judas seemed to be no different than the other disciples, so these men seem to fit in, and yet internally, there are serious problems here. There are certain things about them that we should have caught. The Bible says here that these imposters turned the grace of God into lewdness. They teach things like this. God is a God of grace, right? Yes, okay. God will forgive sin, right? There is no sin that you've committed that God won't forgive. Wrong. Eric says wrong. What is the sin? Okay, unbelief would be one. (laughs) Okay. The point is this, that they emphasize grace to the exclusion of uh, everything else and it, it they say god is a god of grace that's true god has shown undeserved favor to each one of us and you look at the lives just if you just took a cross sample of the lives here and what god saved us out of he has saved us out of horrible sins terrible lifestyles terrible ungodliness he saved us all and they say well if god forgave us such great sins all it did was it it, it magnified his grace It showed um, His grace in a great light in saving such a wretched sinner. That's true. So if God's grace is magnified as a result of our sin, then let's sin all the more so that God's grace might be magnified all the more. Does it sound familiar to you? Paul addressed this in Romans. He said, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Absolutely not. But this is what they were teaching.
The false teachers replaced the grace of God with lewdness. They emphasized or encouraged immoral behavior um, and turned the grace of God into a license to sin. Then it says that they rejected God's authority. We don't get it as clearly in uh, the English Bible, but that's really what it's saying here. It says, they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The word Lord there is actually, there's two words that are used in the same verse for Lord. One of them, uh, I won't say it in, in Greek, but it's where we get our word despot from. And what it means is that there is no greater authority. We don't like the word despot because it has bad connotations in English. But that's where it comes from. And it's, it's talking about one who has absolute authority. And what the, what the false teachers or what the, the apostates have done, they have rejected God's authority. They want nothing to do with God's authority whatsoever. They reject it um, outright. And the Lord Jesus Christ. It is true that most apostates end up with a, um, a, a, a twisted view of who Jesus Christ is. And they reject the deity of Christ almost invariably. Paul's, uh, Jude says here they are marked out for condemnation. Condemnation. What is the condemnation? Well, he's going to answer that as we go through the rest of the book. Here we, again, we come to another set of three uh, examples of God's judgment in history. The first has to do with the Israelites. Let's take a look at, uh, at that. <clears throat> but I want to remind you, verse 5, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. All the Israelites came out of Egypt. All the Israelites enjoyed the Passover lamb that was uh, sacrificed, uh, and the blood was applied to the door, and they exited Egypt. All of the Jews uh, passed through the uh, Red Sea and came to the other side. They enjoyed a great deliverance. But they grumbled and they complained about everything as soon as they landed. In fact, not even it was even before they went through the Red Sea. They already began grumbling and complaining about, about God and why did God bring us out here? Did he come out bring us out here to destroy us and all this sort of thing? Um, then God brought them right up to the border of the promised land. And they sent 12 spies in to, to spy out the land that God had promised. He promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came back with evidence that the land was flowing with milk and honey. They came back, you remember, holding uh, a pole between them with clusters of grapes so big that two men had to carry them. The evidence was clear that it was a land flowing with milk and honey. But they rejected God's word. He had told them to go into the promised land. And they rejected God's word and they uh, they did not believe. In fact, that's the sin that they're accused of right here in this in this um, passage. Those who did not believe. And they refused to enter into the promised land. They spoke evil against God and against his goodness. They did this with eyes wide open. They saw clearly what God had promised, and they did it with eyes wide open. And their carcasses were strewn across the desert sand in judgment for their unbelief and disobedience. The second example that he gives here is in verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness 
for the judgment of the great day. Jude now considers that angels, who are a higher order of beings than human beings, left their proper domain. We are a lower order of creation. The Bible says that Jesus um, uh, came lower than the angels. Okay, That's, so the scriptures tell us that there's a there's a difference of order. The angels were first created, and they had a higher position than we do. They had more power than we do. They knowingly and deliberately tossed it aside. They abandoned their home, which was in heaven, and uh, they did it as a once-for-all act. They knew what they were doing, and they chose to do it, and they abandoned their home in heaven once and for all. God had promised or provided a home for them, and their proper place was to stay there and to serve the Lord. And they chose not to do that. Some of the angels rebelled against God. They wanted their own freedom. They didn't want to follow God's rules. They wanted to be on their own. They wanted to do their own thing. And they didn't want God ruling over them. And so they left. It's so silly. Because God still rules. God still reigns. And God judged them swiftly. And it says they are reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. The point is this, that if God's judgment fell on angels who are greater than we are, we can be sure that God will judge human apostates as well. Verse 7, the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the other cities. We have in human history the fact that God has already judged sin. And he demonstrates his judgment against sin as he did when he swiftly and completely destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah in the cities of the plain. Those he presents here as a, um, an example, as a historical example of sudden and complete, complete judgment that is awaiting sinful men and women. Verse 7 says, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. I don't know if this teaching is gaining ground or not, but um, I heard recently from a man that really surprised me that he said, I don't believe in eternal damnation, eternal punishment. And I said, do you not read your Bible? Do you not see what it says? And this is um, clear from the beginning to the end of the Bible that punishment for sin is eternal. It is everlasting. It does not end. It is eternal. And uh, twice in this book, Jude emphasizes that, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. The destruction of these cities serves as a warning of the eternal fire that is reserved for the ungodly. The Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. It's serious. 
Next, we're looking at verses 8 through 19, the description of apostates today. The three illustrations um, that he just gave us of um, the Israelites, the angels, and the cities of the plain should be taken as serious warnings against forsaking God in this present day. God's judgment is real. God's judgment is final. So he talks about present-day apostates here. Let's take a look at their conduct, first of all. He says, first of all, um, likewise also these dreamers. These dreamers. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the... Oh, no, as a man thinks, so is he. Jesus said, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemy. These are the things which defile a man. Jude has already said that these men are ungodly. Now he points to some specific sins um, here. And he he, um, points out three things about them. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. They defile the flesh. Here, what it means is that they are immoral. That's really what it means. Uh, They're immoral in their thoughts, and they are immoral in their actions. Second, they reject authority. They are not accountable to anyone. They are lone rangers and unwilling to submit to authorities that God has placed over them. It's very important for us to understand this, that God has placed authorities in all realms of life. And His authority structure cannot be broken without terrible consequence. And so, uh, let's take a look at some of them. God, God has placed authorities over us for, for good reason. There are parents... There are fathers, husbands, elders, and even political or government officials are authorities over us. All of them are placed in their position, if you will, of authority by God. Let me ask you, as you think about your life, are you subject to the authorities that are over you? God has placed authorities over you. Are you subject to them? Children, do you obey your parents? It's right. Wives, are you submissive to your husbands? That's God's order. Men and women, are you subject to the elders? And all of us, are we subject to the government officials that God has placed over us? You say, well, I don't like them. Well, I'm sure that... uh, that um, Nero wasn't the, fam- wasn't the uh, most famous person in history either. But, but in the context of Nero being the ruler, we are told to submit to government authorities. There's been no one who has been president of the United States or governor of our, any state that has been like him. We are to be subject to the authorities over us. Are you subject to the authorities over you? If not, I can tell you clearly that you are not subject to God. Okay? Because your attitude towards God, uh, or pardon me, your attitude towards God-given authorities is a reflection 
uh, of your attitude towards God himself. Third, they speak evil of glorious ones or angelic beings. These mere human beings dare to do what even Michael the archangel wouldn't do. He, revile, he would not revile the devil. Even in a heated dispute over the body of Moses, he would not bring a railing accusation against um, Satan, but instead said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, I don't know if you have seen um, lately some of the Christian television shows where pastors uh, get up and they rebuke Satan uh, and, and talk to demonic beings and all of this kind of stuff. It's just absolutely bizarre. But it's, it's very, very real in churches today where they are ta- they're disputing as if they're in a hand-to-hand combat with Satan himself. And uh, the, the very thing that Jude says here that we should not be doing. The dreamers tread where no angel dares to tread. They speak evil of things they know nothing about, but they are experts in sensuality. That's what he's talking about next. And there is a flood of sensuality in the church today, and no one seems to notice. Some Christian publishing companies have almost completely abandoned the faith and promoting the faith and uh, have given themselves over to sensual novels. Some of them have almost entirely given themselves over to that today. Much of what, what is being passed off as Christian music today is filled with sexually suggestive moaning and groaning under the guise of love for God. And it's disgusting. The beasts of the field, Jude talks about, have no sense of morals. And so they're, they're brutish. They just pursue sexual pleasure any way they want to. These, uh, in verse 10, speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally like brute beasts. In these things, they corrupt themselves. Be careful of the diet that you're taking in. Be careful to contend earnestly for the faith. Well, we're going to make a comparison here in verse 11. Jude denounces the apostates and likens them to three Old Testament characters, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Woe to them, he says, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Cain. Like Cain, they reject God's only way of salvation and present anything but a blood sacrifice. They are too sophisticated for a blood sacrifice, but they're not too sophisticated to murder. That's the way Cain was. And here he's talking even about... um, Well, the way of Cain. Balaam, next. He was a prophet. Remember Balaam the prophet? Balaam would preach anything you wanted him to preach as long as the price was right. He was covetous and had given himself over to money. He was a teacher for hire, a preacher for a price, a prophet for a profit. Play on words. He was so insensitive to God's voice that God used a donkey to rebuke him. But they're like Balaam. Korah. What was Korah's sin? Korah's sin was rebellion against a God-given authority. 
God had placed Moses and Aaron in a position of responsibility, a position of leadership, and he rebelled against them. He attempted to worm his way into a spiritual service that was not given to him. And God opened up the earth and swallowed him and all who rebelled with him. Next in verses 12 and 13, their correlation, again, a comparison. He says in verse 12, these are spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Spots in your love feast. Actually, the word could be translated hidden reefs you know like you're out in a boat and you don't realize that there is a reef just under the water and it tears the the uh, underside of your boat apart and you sink that's the idea here that these um, apostates are like that and that's the effect that they have on believers or, or those uh, they, they try to um, bring them down here they are breaking bread with us and yet they will shipwreck us if nothing is done about them Clouds without rain. It's a very uh, apt illustration. You know, a farmer who is waiting for the rain for his crops sees the clouds coming and the wind blowing the clouds toward them and rejoices that, ah, finally the rain is coming and they just go right over them. Clouds without rain. So disappointing. They look very promising with the hope of refreshment, but they're absolutely empty with nothing to offer. Late autumn trees. There's no fruit there's no root they're not saved raging waves of the sea they look for fame but they foam up shame they're relentless or restless and uh, their activity exposes their shame also wandering stars it's a it's an apt illustration it's the term is used of we have planets in orbits and and they you can count on them you can um, sail a ship based on the position of stars that are constant. But these are like wandering stars. They, you, you can't rely on them for anything. They're just wandering um, about. There's, there's no um, order to them at all. The condemnation. Jude says, the blackness of darkness is forever reserved for them. And he also says that Enoch prophesied about their judgment. God will punish these ungodly sinners when he comes with ten thousands of his saints. Now Enoch, verse 14, the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who were ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The word ungodly... I believe in all of the New Testament is used maybe 25 times. It is used six times in this, uh, this book, four times in one verse. Obviously, there's an emphasis here. God is against the ungodly and will punish them um, clearly. Their character is next, verses 16 and 18. I hope that you do not see yourself described by these character traits. These are grumblers complainers walking according to their own lusts 
and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. (sighs) We come finally to the word but. There's a contrast here. But you, beloved of the Lord, loved of the Lord, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. Brothers and sisters, it should not surprise us. The Lord predicted this all the way back to Enoch. He predicted that this is what was going to happen. The Lord said in many of his parables that this would take place. The epistles are full of, of warnings against the ungodly and ungodliness that is coming. It should not surprise us when we see it. It may surprise us who it is, but it should not surprise us to see it. We've been warned uh, over and over again. All right, let's take a look at their condition still. This is now, again, the, the ungodly people. Verse 19, these are sensual persons. A sensual person is someone who is really more concerned about the senses, the body, the physical, and not the spiritual. Um, They are troublemakers who cause divisions, it says. They're always wanting to argue. And then finally it says, not having the Spirit. They do not have the Spirit of God, so they are not saved at all. How do I know that? Because Paul says in Romans 8, 9, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. A person who does not have the Spirit is not a believer at all. And so this person or an apostate can come so, so close to looking like a believer, to being accepted by believers, and yet the truth of God's Word is this, that they were never saved in the first place. They do not have the Spirit of God. Finally, we come to the exhortation to believers, verses 20 through 23. But you, beloved... Building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. There are several exhortations here. We'll just go through them one at a time. First of all, believers, we are to build. Build what? Build ourselves up on your most holy faith. Why? So that you can contend for it. The faith has already, the foundation has already been laid. It's there. But we must build um, on that foundation that was provided for us by the apostles. It's not adding things to it, but it's, it's becoming more and more familiar with it and, and uh, effective in using it to contend for the faith. Pray is the next exhortation. Pray in the Holy Spirit. <coughs> this has nothing to do with praying in tongues but rather uh, praying, directed, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Keep, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Look, look for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Really what he's talking about is the second coming of the Lord. That should be in our view all the time. Jesus Christ is coming again. And it has an effect in our spiritual walk with the Lord. The rapture of the church um, is right around the corner. How do I know this? Because he predicts that in the last days, perilous times will come. 
And we are seeing perilous times that have come. That means that he is coming um, very, very soon. The next, in verses 22 and 23, rescue. Rescue those in doubt. Well, it says, um, and on some have compassion, making a distinction. You know, there are those who have been troubled by apostates, by false teachers, may have been influenced by them in some way. We, we have to make a distinction between what the false teacher or the apostate believes and what the individual believes. And there are some that can be rescued from that kind of corruption. But they need a firm grounding in the faith. Second, we are to rescue those in danger, those who are believers ready to fall uh, into the fire. We ought to save them out of it. There are people who are going to be saved, though as by fire. They're going to be so close to, uh, to hell fires, and yet in the nick of time, if you will, the last moment, the Lord will save them. And we need to recognize what God is doing in an individual's life, save them even as by fire. And then also rescue those who are in defilement. There are some who have become defiled by the flesh. These false teachers have promoted license, freedom to sin all they want, and some have chosen to listen to them and have fallen prey to their false teaching. Those who become defiled by the flesh probably is a reference to sexual sins, and we are to show mercy on them, recognizing or hating, as he says, even the garment spotted by the flesh. There is an association that people have with sin, and it often has to do with objects that um, are related to that sin, whether it be clothing or other objects. And some of you may have, when you first came to know the Lord, some of you may have recognized that in your own life, that certain objects that you possess, certain clothes that you had, really reminded you of sinful behavior, sinful past in your life. And some of you went to the trouble of taking it and burning it destroying it so that it would not have that uh, impact in your life. And I really think that's what he's talking about here, is that hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Many believers enjoy a measure of freedom from destroying items of clothing or objects that remind them of sin in their lives. Finally, we come to the last two verses. We have been warned that perilous times are ahead. We are warned that false teachers and even apostates will infiltrate, infiltrate the church. We are counseled to take Heed he who thinks he stands, lest he fall. But we are assured as believers that the Lord alone is able to preserve us. That's how we started. We are called, we are sanctified, we are preserved. And then at the end, he comes right back to believers again and he says, look, though all of this is going on around you, the Lord is able The Lord is able to keep you and to cause you to stand in His presence full of joy. He is able. The Lord is able to deliver us from stumbling and to present us faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ the Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power before all times and now and forever. Okay, let's just close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we pray that we would indeed earnestly contend for the faith. Lord, 
I pray that we would be a people strong in the faith, strong in our understanding of the Word and the doctrines that are associated with it. We pray, Lord, that we would be able to stand up and uh, be counted in this uh, battle. We pray, Lord, that you would deliver us from uh, any association or any um, um, trouble with uh, apostates of any, fo- of any form, Lord. We pray that you would, as you have promised, keep us, preserve us, Lord, to the end, that we might stand faultless before you in your presence and bring honor and glory to your name. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.